Open the Bible this morning, Second uh, Samuel chapter 3. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we want you to borrow a copy of the Bible that we have right in the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 216, page 216 in our copy of the Bible, or Second Samuel chapter 3 in your copy as we continue in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. Now, you know, everywhere we look in our world today, it seems like we got crisis. I mean, we have crisis in Russia, we have crisis in Japan, we have crisis in the Asian markets, we have crisis in Yugoslavia, we have crisis in the Middle East, we have crisis in the global marketplace, we have crisis on Wall Street, we have crisis in the White House, we have crisis with the budget now on Capitol Hill. I mean, to paraphrase the bumper sticker, crisis happens. That's just what goes on. Now, most of us here, let's face it, spend an awful lot of time trying to maintain a stability of life so there is no crisis. Lots of us here put out enormous amounts of time and energy trying to keep things flowing smoothly, which we should do. I mean, that's good. But regardless of how much energy we put out to try to keep things smooth, it's true, isn't it, that sometimes, because of mistakes we make, and sometimes because of mistakes other people make that weren't even our fault, we end up in the middle of deep matzah. And we're in trouble. And we've got crisis. Now, does the Bible say anything to us about principles to handle impending crisis? Does the Bible teach us anything about principles that we can use to manage crisis effectively and in a godly way, so that crisis doesn't become like a forest fire that just gets completely out of control? The answer is yes. That's what we want to talk about today. We want to use a, 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 a real-life example from David's life, where David had to manage a crisis, and then we want to look at the principles that he used to do it effectively and pull them out and talk about how we can do it. So let's look together. Second Samuel chapter 3, a little bit of background just before we start. Remember that King Saul has died. And after his death, two kingdoms arose in Israel, one under David and David's commanding general Joab, another under Saul's only surviving son, a fellow named Ishbosheth, and his commanding general named Abner. And there was civil war for a couple of years. But uh, towards the end of that two-year period, Abner decided he was going to um, switch over to David's side, so he goes and he cuts a deal with David. The only problem is he didn't cut the deal with Joab, David's general. And so Joab, as we saw last week, lured Abner into a meeting and then proceeded to murder him in cold blood. Now, and a very important fact is told us in verse 26, if you'd look there with me. Verse 26, the end of the verse says, but David did not know it. David did not know what Joab was planning to do. He didn't sanction what Joab was planning to do. He, he didn't hear about it until after it was completely over. Well, what did he do? Let's look together. Verse 28. It says, Later when David heard about what Joab had done, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. I think David was a tiny bit upset, don't you, when he heard about this. And let me tell you why he was upset. First of all, he was outraged because of just the sheer unrighteousness of what Joab had done, luring an innocent man in and murdering him like this. But he was also upset 
Because Joab had suddenly created a crisis now that David had to deal with. You see, Abner was a very popular man in Israel. Abner was a very well-known man. He was a long-term leader in Israel. He had been Saul's right-hand man for many, many years. And the people cared about him. The people loved him. He, Like I said, he was a popular man. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the end of verse 32. It says that his funeral people wept for him. And the end of verse 34. And all the people wept for him again. And David knew that the people of Israel would never back him as king if they believed that he, David, had a part in orchestrating the murder of this man so that he could ascend to the throne. David knew if he ever planned to be king, he had to defuse that crisis and he had to do it right away. So what did he do? Well, let's look verse 31. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth. This was a, a sign of, of grief and mourning. And walk in mourning in front of Abner. And David organized the funeral himself, and David himself walked right behind Abner's casket at this funeral. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb, and all the people wept also. And then the king, verse 33, sang a lament, a eulogy. He made up his own, uh, his own personal eulogy for this man, Abner, and recited it at the funeral. And verse 35, then they all came after the funeral and they urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath and said, may God deal with me ever so severely if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. David said, not only did I organize the funeral, but I myself am fasting all day in grief and mourning for this man. Verse 36, and all the people took note. And they were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner. David did a marvelous job of diffusing what could have been an incredibly destructive crisis. And he used some principles that I want us to talk about. But that brings us to the end of, of, of the chapter. And it leads us to ask the most important question. And you know what that question is. What's the question? So what? Lon, uh, I'm, I'm glad for David. That's wonderful. But I don't even know anybody named Abner. You know what I'm saying? This has no meaning for my life at all. Well, let's see if it does. You know, I've been pastor here at McLean Bible Church for 18 years. And in those 18 years, I've had the opportunity, if that's the right word, to face some crises while I've been here. Now, in my early years uh, here at McLean Bible Church, I have to be honest and tell you, I did a pretty awful job of handling crisis. I mean, usually I would take a bad situation and I would make it worse, is what usually would happen. And you say, well, why? Why would you do that? Well, I didn't do it on purpose, but the reason I did it is because when I went to seminary and they trained me how to be a pastor, so-called, there was no course in seminary called Crisis 101. Nobody ever taught me how to deal with crisis. Nobody ever said these are some principles that you need to use when a crisis happens. So I had no idea what to do. Now, thankfully, over the last 18 years, God has taught me some things, some principles that when you follow them, they help you manage crisis so it doesn't get completely out of control. And as I look at what David did here in 2 Samuel 3, I see David using every one of these principles to manage his crisis that God has taught me. So I want to I boil them out and I want to share them with you. And let me just say with, to you that those principles, the ones I'm going to share with you, work in every arena of life. 
that if you have crisis in the workplace, these principles will work. If you have crisis in, in your family, these principles will work. If you have crisis in some relationship, these principles will work. If you have crisis at school, these principles will work. They will work in any arena, not just church. So let me give them to you. I have five. Number one. Principle number one is engage right away. Principle number one, when you have a looming crisis, engage right away. Flip over with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. We're going to see most of these principles illustrated in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 468. Page 468, Proverbs chapter 27. And look at what it says here. Proverbs 27, look at verse 23. It says, be sure that you know the condition of your flock and be sure that you give careful attention to your herds for riches don't endure forever. And what this verse is calling us to is to be engaged with the things that we're involved with, to be proactive and connected with the things related, in this case, to our livelihood. If trouble begins to brew, the Bible says, get right on it. Now, friends... So often when a crisis begins to take shape, I have found that people tend to go into neutral. People tend to get paralyzed. And this is one of the most common and one of the most deadly mistakes people make in dealing with a crisis. Somehow we convince ourselves that if we just do nothing, it's going to go away. That if we just do nothing, it's going to resolve itself and disappear, where actually it won't. Doing nothing only allows a crisis to grow, to intensify, to get worse. Crisis is a time to act, not a time to, to, to get inactive. It's a time to mobilize and a time to get proactive. And would you notice that David followed this principle in dealing with the crisis that he had with Abner's death? He didn't ignore it. He didn't dismiss it. He didn't minimize its danger. No, what did he do? The moment he heard about what happened, he swung into immediate action. He organized a funeral. He gathered the people. He proclaimed a time of mourning. He wrote a eulogy. He went on a personal fast because David understood that the first thing we need to do in the face of a crisis is engage. You know, one of my heroes in world history is a fellow named Winston Churchill. To paraphrase his own words, never has one man done so much with so little to work with. And Winston Churchill, many people don't realize this, but by the time World War II began, Winston Churchill had already completed a very prolific career in politics and had retired. He was living on his estate and painting pictures, and he was an old man, and he said, I'm done. My, I already did my thing. But as Hitler rose to power in the 30s, and as Hitler began to reveal his hostile intentions for Europe, uh, Churchill began to urge then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain to act. He would write him and he would say, listen, you need to do something. This is the wrong time to do appeasement. This is the wrong time to do nothing. Churchill kept warning him that inaction is the wrong way to deal with crisis. But you know, Chamberlain didn't listen to him. Neither did anybody else in England. They wrote him off as a sputtering old man. They wrote him off as a, a, a remnant of prehistoric politics. They said that he was out of touch with the realities of modern diplomacy. The truth is, Churchill was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. And the man was smart enough to understand that the right way to confront crisis is with action and with engagement, not with passivity and delay. And he was right. 
You know, whatever crisis you may be facing, my friend, if you've got a crisis, I can assure you almost any action you take is better than nothing. Almost any action. Don't dupe yourself into believing that if you just ignore the problem, it's going to go away. It isn't. It will get more intense. It will get more deadly the longer you let it go unattended. Just like Hitler got more intense and more deadly, the more Chamberlain let him to go unattended. Churchill knew what he was talking about. Let's take his advice. Principle number two is when you've got crisis looming, principle number two, humble yourself. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. It's just flipped back a few pages. Proverbs chapter 6. And look with me at verse 2. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 2. Here's what it says. Verse 2, Proverbs 6. If you have been trapped by what you said, if you have been ensnared by the words of your mouth, sounds like my life verse. Okay. Verse 3. Then do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you've fallen into your neighbor's hands, go and humble yourself. That interesting advice. Go and humble yourself with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Get right on it. In, a, in this crisis that he had with Abner, David could have very easily taken an arrogant position. He could have very easily said, hey, wait a minute, I am the king, do you understand that? And I don't have to go to this man's funeral, I don't have to come up with a eulogy for this man, I don't have to proclaim a day of mourning for this guy, and frankly, I don't need to be sensitive to people's suspicions that I had something to do with it, I am the king, and I will do whatever I jolly well please. Do you understand? Sure, David could have had this attitude, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because David was a smart man. And David was a good leader. And David understood the best position to take in a crisis, if you want to, uh, uh, to disarm it, is to take a position of humility. All arrogance does, all defiance does, is make people madder. You know, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, a friend of mine gave me a puppy. This little German Shepherd puppy. And I raised this dog to adulthood, and it stayed with me for a number of years. And I named the dog Noah. Don't ask me why I wasn't a Christian, but Noah seemed like a good name. So I named the dog Noah. Well, Noah was, was incredibly loyal. He was fiercely territorial, and he was always up for a good fight. And so we, I, this dog was in dog fights all the time. And, and so sometimes I would go into the dog fight, and if I grabbed him, if I could position myself to grab him by the back of the collar with both hands, I could pull him off. He grew up to be a 90-pound German Shepherd, by the way. And sometimes, to be honest with you, it was just too flat, too dangerous to get in the middle of this thing. And you just had to stand back and let it go to the bitter end. So I, I got to watch a lot of dog fights. Now, I want to share with you some dog truth. Because I learned a lot of truth by watching dog fights. So I have dog truth to share with you this morning. And this is what I noticed watching these, all these dog fights. I noticed that regardless of the size of the dogs involved, and regardless of the ferocity of the fight up to that point, when one dog would roll over and expose his neck to the other dog and completely humble himself, you would think the dog on top would just rip his throat out. They never do that. Never do that. The dog on top, once the dog on the bottom humbled himself, would simply stop and walk away. I saw it happen dozens of times. And it seems to me that dogs are smarter than most people I know. Think about it now. They recognize the power of humility in a crisis. They understand that. 
And, and over the past 18 years here at McLean, I have discovered the best position to take in a crisis is a position of humility. To step up to the plate and accept full responsibility for what you did. Or even if you didn't do it. In this case, David didn't even do it. But he still stepped up to the plate and accepted the responsibility for something someone on his team did. To expose your neck to the degree that is righteous and godly will disarm a crisis. Proverbs 15, verse 1, listen. A gentle answer, a humble answer, turns away wrath. But harsh words, an arrogant spirit, stirs up anger. See, friends, humility is what activates mercy in other people. Humility is what cools people's emotions down and allows a crisis to be resolved. When crisis hits, I have a piece of advice for you. Try being more like a dog. Really, it'll work. You'd be surprised. May I also say to you that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that this very same principle, the principle of humility, it lies at the foundation of how you establish a relationship with Jesus Christ. To establish a relationship with Almighty God, what we need to do is we need to be willing to humble ourselves before God, to accept the full responsibility for our actions, and to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And when we do, that's exactly what we get, the mercy of God. You do not have to be rich to get a relationship with God. You do not have to be educated to get a relationship with God. You do not need to be powerful to get a relationship with God. But you do need to humble yourself to get a relationship with God. And so if you're here and you know you don't have a relationship with God, I hope you'll think about this. This is how you get one. Same way. Principle number three is come clean right away. When you're facing a crisis, you need to come clean right away. Proverbs 28. Turn there and look with me. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his sin, his wrongdoing, will not prosper. But whoever confesses it openly, whoever makes a clean sweep of telling the truth about it and renounces it, will find mercy. Friends, when a crisis is looming, you and I only have one chance to redeem our credibility and to earn the moral authority to help solve that crisis. I want to repeat what I said. When a crisis is looming, listen now, you and I only have one chance to redeem our credibility and to earn the moral authority to be part of solving the crisis. And that one chance is the very first time we open our mouth and speak to the crisis. Whether it's in a church congregational meeting, whether it's in front of the press, whether it's in a staff meeting at work, whether it's in a meeting with your superior officer, whether it's in a family meeting or a conversation with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when it comes to dealing with a crisis that's looming on the horizon, the first time we open our mouth is the most important time we open our mouth. And if the first time we open our mouth, what comes out is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it may be ugly, and it may be shameful, and it may be hurtful. But if it's authentically honest, we will often still find we have the platform we need to work through and resolve that crisis. But if we take the Chinese torture approach to letting truth out, you know, drip, 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 if we take that approach... I can promise you, because I have done it and I have learned the hard way myself, 
that crisis will take on a life of its own and you will spend the rest of your life trying to stomp that thing out. At the first moment, when it's the first chance for you to speak, believe me, most crisis has the possibility of being contained. But once we come out and we don't come clean the first time, it is very difficult to get your arms around that crisis again and diffuse it. You know, this past summer... President Clinton nominated Daryl Jones to become the Secretary of the Air Force. Now, Mr. Jones had a very distinguished record. He had gone to the Air Force Academy. He was a graduate with honors. He was a former fighter pilot. He was a Florida state senator. He said, well, gee, sounds like a great choice to me. What happened? Well, the Senate turned him down. The Armed Services Committee turned him down. He said, well, why would they turn a guy like this down? Well, let me tell you. L.A. Times, and I quote, Critics of this on the Senate Armed Services Committee faulted Jones for repeatedly amending his testimony when confronted with ongoing contradictions in the record. Senator Rick Santorum said Jones might have sailed through this process had he only been completely candid with us from the start. End of quote. Then you know what the, what, what the senator was saying? What he was really saying was, there was nothing the man ended up admitting that was all that serious that it would have endangered his appointment. But if he had come clean and told us the whole truth and nothing but the truth from the very beginning, he'd have sailed through and been Secretary of the Air Force. But when he released his record, and then we got witnesses who disagreed with it, so he had to amend it, and then more witnesses disagreed, so he had to amend that, and then more witnesses disagreed, so he had to amend that, and what we got was amendment after amendment after amendment after amendment. Even though the changes weren't all that significant, we decided this is not a person we want in this position, and we voted him down. I read that article and I said, wow, there's a lesson here for us. And the lesson is, you want a crisis to keep going? Just don't tell the truth the first time and keep amending your testimony and it'll keep going. And you'll never put it out. He said, well, Lon, what if I've blown it? I mean, what if I had a crisis and I really didn't come clean? My advice to you is, if you want to put it to an end, go back, humble yourself, say I was wrong, I didn't tell the whole truth, but I'm going to tell it to you now. That's the only way I know to fix it, is go back and fix it. Principle number four. Respect your opponent. You know, usually in a crisis, there's somebody against you. Usually in a crisis, there's some foe or some adversary that's in there with you. Peter said this, 1 Peter 2.17, Peter said, Show proper respect to everyone. Now that includes your opponent. And, and you know, I look at David here and I realize, hey, David could have very easily taken the position that said, wait a minute, Abner has been my nemesis my whole life. When he was with Saul, what did he do? He tried to kill me. And then after Saul died, what did he do? He switched over to Saul's son and he tried to kill me some more. You know, I'm not going to organize a funeral and show any respect to this guy. I'm going to go spit on his grave. I'm glad he's gone. No, that wasn't David's attitude. David said, I might not have liked this guy, and this guy might have been against me my whole life, but you know what? He still deserves to be honored as a worthy opponent. He still deserves to be respected as a worthy opponent. And good crisis management, friends, involves treating your opponent in an honorable way. When we demean an opponent, when we insult an opponent, when we are out to degrade and to disgrace an opponent, what it does is it cheapens us. It cheapens the way people feel about us and... And it only serves to harden your opponent's position and make it more difficult to try to resolve the crisis. Now, this is hard to do. When somebody's really opposing you, this is very hard to do. 
but it pays rich dividends. David did this. He wept at the grave of one of his greatest nemesis. And God honored him for doing it. Principle number five and finally is give your crisis to God. Give your crisis to God. What I mean by that is we've given, you know, some great human strategies. Uh, engage early, humble yourself, come clean right away, honor your opponent. These are wonderful. We should do them. But ultimately, friends, we need to bring that crisis and lay it at the feet of God and say, Lord, I'm going to do all these human-based things that you tell me to do in the Bible. But you know what? My trust is not in all of these efforts I'm doing to solve this and pour cold water on the crisis, Lord. My trust is in you. So I'll do my part, but now, Lord, you need to do your part. You need to show me your mercy, and you need to get me through safely, and you need to keep this from getting out of control, and you need to cause this crisis to work out to your glory and my benefit. Lord, I'm not trusting my strategies. I'm trusting you. I have to tell you, friends, in 18 years, I've run into some crises here that if they had gotten out of control, could have cost me my ministry here. It's very possible I wouldn't still be here today. I've learned what it means to go to God and say, God, I've done everything I can. Now, this belongs to you. Lord, you've got to show me mercy in this crisis. And I've seen God do that. I've seen God step into some nasty situations, usually of my own making, and pour cold water on them and preserve me. And you know what? God is anxious to do that for you. But the problem is most of the time we don't give him a chance. We're so busy working it out ourselves, we never actually take the crisis and give it to him. Say, God, you're living, you're alive, you intervene in human events all the time. So, so you take this crisis and you deal with it. I'm going to trust you. It works. I've seen God do it and he'll do it for you if you'll just give him the opportunity. Well, what have we learned today? We've learned when, cli when crisis is looming, there are ways to calm it down and to disarm it. Number one, we need to engage right away. Number two, we need to humble ourselves. Number three, we need to come clean right up front. Number four, we need to respect our opponent. And number five and finally, we need to give our crisis to God and make sure our trust is not in us, but is in Him to solve that crisis ultimately. And I hope you'll take these principles, and as I said, they will work in the workplace. They will work in your home. They will work in your school. They will work anywhere you use them. They will work. May God help us take them and put them to use. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that as hard as we try to stop it, crisis still happens. And Lord, I, I thank you so much for talking to us practically today about how to disarm crisis. How to keep it from becoming a forest fire that's out of control. Lord, help us to take these principles and to implement them into our life. Change our life by what we've heard here today. And most importantly, Lord, cause us to leave here understanding that it's not just a matter of human effort to solve crisis. But that as Christians, we have the added resource of a living God who is willing to intervene in our world to help his children. Lord, help us never to leave that step out of trying to deal with crisis in our lives. Father, take what we've learned here today, I pray. And for many of us who are in crisis, give us a strategy that will help us to get out. And thank you for talking to us about such down-to-earth problems the way you have today, Lord. We're very grateful for the Word of God. 
and how it really does have truth that works in the 20th century. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.